Let's ask God to speak to us this morning through his word. Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, in the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out, of their field, out in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. That's excitement right there for the word of God. Thank you. Thank you. I want to preach to you this morning on the glory of the baby Jesus. The glory of the baby Jesus. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Father, we do ask that as we come into this text this morning that we would experience Jesus. That we would see not just simply a, a picture of a manger scene, but that we would hear the message that the angels proclaimed. That he is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Angels, shepherds, a manger. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you know these symbols, these pictures. It's a picture of Christmas. Grandma might have had a little manger scene in her living room. 
you heard about the baby Jesus. What is so great about this scene? This morning we're going to talk about angels. We're going to talk about a manger. But the greatness of Christmas, the greatness of this scene, is not actually in what we see, but it's in the message that we hear about the changeless identity of the baby. Jesus doesn't change. Think about this. We change. Part of being human is that we don't stay the same yesterday, today, and forever. Part of being human is that we change. Tim, I talked about you last week. You said today is your birthday, right? Happy birthday, brother. What are you, 25? 44. 44, so December the 9th, 1974. When you were born, that was when you got the birth certificate and everything. When you were born, they didn't really know much about your identity other than you're a little baby boy. And that was enough to make your mama celebrate, right? But they did not know at that time that you were going to end up going to high school, graduating from city, getting trained in a career, working a job, having a family. Humans change as we get older. Our identity actually kind of develops and grows. However you identify yourself, and I don't necessarily mean spiritually, I mean according to you know, the worldly understanding of identity. However you identify yourself today, all of these things are things that you've grown into, things that you've developed, things that you've become. Jesus did not become Savior. He is Savior. Jesus did not go to school and learn how to be Lord and then was knighted and declared Lord. But he, as a baby in the manger, already is Lord. Jesus didn't go through the rigors of becoming Messiah and then graduate as the chosen one and became the Christ. But rather, Jesus, as a baby, already is Christ. What I want you to see in this picture of Christmas, this common theme of angels and shepherds, and a manger, is not just simply this nativity scene. Looking at the nativity scene doesn't actually show you the glory of that moment. The glory of that moment is only understood when we know and understand the identity of the baby that is lying in the manger. 
And that is the point of Luke chapter 2. So let's go ahead and look at this chapter. And let's, as we study this chapter, keep this question in mind. What is so great about Christmas? And what we're going to discover is it's in the identity of Jesus. The first thing we see, though, is that Jesus' birth fulfills prophecy. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, this decree goes out. And it gets Jesus to Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we see that the, the Messiah is going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem. Now, Mary and Joseph are not from Bethlehem. So a good question that you might be asking is, is how in the world is Mary and Joseph going to get to this little town of Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem? Well, the answer is given to us. And the answer comes, of all places, from Rome. Miles and miles away is the city of Rome that has dominated the world. Uh, Israel is living as an oppressed people group under the Roman Empire. And Caesar, who probably knows hardly anything about the Jewish traditions, he knows nothing about the Messiah that is to come. Caesar, the great almighty Caesar, is under the sovereignty of God. And God moves in Caesar's mind to declare a census, which was a very common thing for Caesar to do, to get an idea of who's in his empire. The point that Luke is showing us is that Rome is under the sovereignty of God. That God is even using Rome, the oppressor, to bring about redemption. So Caesar declares this decree, and he knows Nothing of this, this peasant couple from this minority people group who are oppressed being driven now to go to this small little town of Bethlehem, the town of David, in order to take this census to be registered. Well, that is how Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem. Now, they get to Bethlehem, and uh, she evidently goes into labor. Probably not what was expected going into the trip. Maybe it was a result of the travel. We don't know. But Mary, while in Bethlehem, goes into labor. And she gives birth to Jesus. Now, in his birth, we see humility. There is no room, it says, for him in the inn. Some years ago, Jess and I went to a conference in D.C. This is when we lived over on the eastern shore of Maryland. We went to a conference in D.C. and we decided to get a hotel. Well, we didn't book a hotel ahead of time. And every single hotel we stopped in was full. Or out of our price range. <laughs> So for all practical purposes, they were full. No vacancy. And so we went from one hotel to the, pretty soon we were out of D.C. And we kept stopping. We didn't find, we got to Annapolis before we found a hotel. Now, I didn't feel very blessed that night. 
I don't know if you've ever had something not go as planned, but you don't necessarily feel like God is working for you right now. You don't really feel like you are a special child of God when things aren't working out as expected. Listen, isn't it worth noting that when God came into this world, things didn't work out as expected for his mother? Isn't it worth noting that when God came into this world, things didn't quite go right? There was no room. Now, if Mary was more like me, she would have been frustrated and upset. And if she was like you, you'd be writing a, on their website some dirty review, right? <laughs> but Mary trusts the Lord. And the baby ends up being born. And they place the baby into a feeding trough. A manger. Such a display of the humility of God as He comes into this world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. One of the marks of Jesus Christ is that He's humble. Listen, I wrestled this week with this phrase, God is humble. Is God humble? Well, let's just think about this for a second. Is God humble? God is humble. It almost sounds like heresy. And I really wrestle, is God humble? And now here's my answer, yes and no. No, if your definition of humility is that he considers somebody else better than him. God doesn't consider any other being better than him. As a matter of fact, if he did, God would be wrong, and God can't be wrong, so therefore, God knows that he is the best. And he delights in his greatness. And God is right to do that. Yet, if we understand humility to be a, a selfless, sacrificial, serving of others. If we understand humility to, to be, as it's defined in one article, using one's blessings, resources, and rights for the restoration, building up, and blessing of others, then I think we can say, yes, God is a humble God. Certainly, Christ is God. And Christ, certainly in Philippians, is demonstrating humility. We can certainly say then that Christ is humble. As he lays aside what is rightly his, knowing that it's rightly his, knowing that he is the greatest, he sets it aside. As a matter of fact, this is the greatest demonstration of humility. This defines humility for the human race. In his birth, we see humility, a mark of who we as his people ought to be, 
Oh, we know how to pretend like we're humble, don't we? Oh, I'm just trying to be like you. No, you're not. You're just trying to sound like you're humble. But you think you're better than me. (laughs) Or like the pastor who has a great sermon on humility, but he hasn't preached it yet because he doesn't have a big enough crowd to preach it to. I read that. Or like the person who brags on social media about all the selfless work they're doing, only to look every five minutes and see how many likes they got. We, we know how to present as humble. But do we as a people really understand what it means to use our blessings, resources, and rights for the restoration, building up, and blessing of others? True humility is giving ourselves for others. It, 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 it's, it's actually the very stuff, according to the, to the scriptures, of marriage. Serving one another. Unless the single saints think that you are outside of all of that because you're not married. Well, it's also the stuff of being single in 1 Corinthians 7. Using our resources for others, to serve others. Kids who have, in this room who have a church and who have adults in your life and who have parents that love you, Uh, for you to look at other kids in your class who might not have these things and they might act out a little bit more than you do and for you to kind of look down on them is to not understand what you have been given, the privileges, the opportunities that you've been given. Humility then looks like serving these other kids, doesn't it? This applies to the workplace as well, adults. Or as a church family, do we come to church primarily thinking, what can I get out of these people? Or do we come to church primarily thinking, what can I give for these people? Now there's more here in this text that demonstrates humility. Look at the people who the angels go to. Who who was the people group that first received the good news of Jesus Christ's arrival? It was the lowly. It was the shepherds. Now, shepherds in this society were seen as dirty. They were outcasts. They were seen as unclean. There's actually documentation from this era which says you cannot trust a shepherd. The shepherd's testimony was not heard in court. They were considered to be unreliable. Listen, the angels go with this good news, with this message of Jesus being in the world. They go to the shepherds. They go to these outcasts. I think a point that Luke is trying to make here, and this is going to be consistent with this whole gospel, is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the outsiders. If you're not a Christian here, and you sort of feel like an outsider in some ways, 
You don't really feel like a part of what's going on. I've got good news for you. You are the kind of person that God loves to go to. God goes to the outsiders. Secondly, we've got to talk about his identity. As I've already stated, the glory of Jesus is not seen in the nativity scene. Now, we see the humility there, and we need to note that. But the glory of the baby is not seen until we hear the message that is declared by the angels to these outsiders. We don't understand why this is so great. And probably growing up, if you didn't grow up a Christian looking at the nativity scene, you didn't understand why it was so great because you didn't understand the identity of the baby in the manger. We've got to understand his identity in order to understand his, uh, the greatness of this moment. My mother, when I was growing up, she would always tell this story of this time when uh, her, uh, she, she, it was Christmas time, she really wanted a bicycle, and her father uh, was in the basement working for hours, and she was not allowed to go down into the basement. And so she figured that there might be a bicycle in the basement. And so one day, she creeps around the outside, and she sneaks a peek through the little basement window, and you know what she sees? She sees her dad down there. And he has an old bike, and he's sanding it, and he's got paint cans out, and she knew that that bike was for her. And she said, I felt really guilty for looking. Well, Christmas morning came, and here comes the bike. They didn't have money to buy a new bike. What she got was a bike that had been sanded down, the dents were pulled out, her father repainted it, there were new tires and brand new streamers. Now in that moment, do you think my mother as a little child most loved the bike or her father? You see, sometimes Sometimes we like what we can get more than the Father. But when we understand what the Father has done for us, when we understand the work that has been done for us, oh, we appreciate the bike, but it's really the Father that we remember. Listen, as we look at this, and as we think about Christmas, and we think about the good gifts that God gives us and has given us, I want us to ask this question. Are we most concerned about what we can get from Jesus? Or are we most concerned with his identity? With who he is? With knowing him? With loving him? Look at verse 10. The angels come to the shepherds, and they say to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news 
of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They say, I bring you good news. Everybody say good news. That's the word for gospel. They're bringing the gospel. They're bringing this good news. Now, we live in a bad news world, don't we? All we hear throughout the day is bad news. We live in a world with murder. We live in a world with extortion. We live in a world with theft. We live in a world where people take advantage of you and and stab you in the back. We live in a world where you do the same to somebody else and you get caught and now you got to pay for that. We live in a bad news world, don't we? Well, what God brings to us and to the shepherds here through the angels is good news. We can't emphasize this point enough. God doesn't bring us bad news. He brings us good news. And as he comes to these outsiders, and as these angels proclaim this good news, they proclaim first a Savior. Everybody say Savior. Savior. He is the Savior, the angels say. Now, if you've ever wronged somebody, which I know nobody in this room has, but let's just assume that you have. If you've ever wronged somebody, you've sinned against them, you've you've committed some crime against them, And you know that they're upset with you. You know that they very well could just hold this against you for the rest of your life. And you come to them and and you hear the words, I forgive you. Isn't there joy in those words? Listen, if, if we say, oh, I don't have any joy in my life. Yeah, 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 I know that Jesus is my Savior, but I still don't have any joy. I don't think you really know that he's your Savior. <laughs> like, we, we, we can't hear the words, I forgive you, and believe those words and not be filled with joy. Either you don't realize how sinful you are and that you need to be forgiven of your sins, or you don't really believe that God has forgiven you of your sins. The good news that is proclaimed is proclaimed in this word that a Savior has come. Jesus Christ has come to live the life I should have lived. He dies on the cross in your place and in my place. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the wrath of God for my sin is placed onto Jesus and He dies for you and for me, for all who will believe it. He dies in our place. He takes the hell that you deserve and He serves you. In humility, He loves you as He takes that on Himself. The perfect sacrifice, now dead, buried in the ground, three days later rises from the dead, which says that the Father is pleased with this Savior's sacrifice. And that He is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you believe that? Do you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins? I plead with you, trust Him. There is no other Savior this world can offer you. You will turn to Christ and trust Him or you will die in your guilt. 
Family, I plead with you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who is your only hope in this world and in the next. You will stand before God. There's a lot of things that you want to do in life. There's a lot of things that you think you're going to do in life. Some of you still think you're going to make a million dollars. What's the chances? I don't know. I don't know. But I'll, I'll tell you this. There's a 100% chance that you will stand before Jesus. What are you focusing on right now? He is your Savior. This is good news. He goes, they go on and they say he is the Lord. He's the Lord. This, this is a term that references his authority. Meaning, if he is the Lord, he is our master. He is someone that we are called to obey. Boy, we don't like that word either. We're called to obey Jesus. But listen, we don't like it simply because we're used to being called to obey people that are not for our good. But if we can trust that God is always for your good and that Jesus Christ will never require something of you that is ultimately for your harm, then obedience actually becomes delightful. But we must obey Him, which means we cannot accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. To say, oh yeah, yeah, He's my Savior, but I don't really follow Him. Wait a second, let's just look at Luke 2. He's declared to be Savior and Lord. He is our King. He sits on the eternal throne of David. And He rules. He's Christ. Savior, Lord, and Christ. Now, Christ is a word for his Messiahship. Christ isn't his last name. Some of you didn't know that. Christ is a term for his Messiahship. It's, it's, it's a title. Now, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know the story of Adam and Eve. They bit the fruit. They sinned against God. Uh, immediately sin entered into the world. Death entered into the world. Uh, it's as if destruction, the jaws of destruction just kind of came down on humanity in that moment. Now God, instead of giving humanity over to destruction, God begins immediately His process of redemption. He promises something to Adam and to Eve. He says that there is a, a one coming through the seed of the woman. And this one coming is going to crush the head of the serpent. Meaning there is one coming through this people who is going to redeem the people from the jaws of death. This one coming is going to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. The prophets talk about Him. And finally, as we see here in Luke 2, the Messiah comes, fulfilling the prophecies regarding Himself. He stands now as the Christ, the Chosen One, the One whose reign will never end. 
good news, Savior, Lord, Christ. These are big words for shepherds. Think about this for a moment. These are big words for an outcast people group. These are big concepts. There's a lot of theology in these words. And this theology, this proclamation, is not given to kings and to rulers and the elite and the educated or the scribes or the Pharisees. This is given to shepherds. Commenting on this text, the Bidi Enyabwile says this, Nothing about poverty prevents people from knowing God well. Nothing about class determines what people can afford to know about God. Family, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. This huge proclamation comes to shepherds. It comes to the outsiders. The reality is this, in our culture, and even in a lot of churches in America, we have allowed classism to define us. One preacher has recently said that if you dress well and have a nice car and a nice house, that means God is smiling on you. No, that means you're a classist. That means you know how to be middle class or upper class. God came to the lower class here. He came to the dirty shepherds here. Listen, there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God and there are no second class citizens in the garden church. Who are the people that we might ostracize? And we might say, well, yeah, you're part of us, but not really. You know, sometimes single saints can feel that way. Singles, let me say this. You don't need to get married to be a recipient of all the blessings of Jesus Christ. Say it again. Say it again. I already said it once. (laughs) And I don't remember exactly how I said it, so... (laughs) At our Sunday night prayer service this last Sunday night, we were just rejoicing for the fact that there are people among us at our prayer service who have been considered by society to be an outcast, to be an outsider, to have no hope, to have no future. How good it is to recognize that God takes this message to the outsider. Now listen, we, this means we don't write anybody off in our gospel proclamation. We don't write anybody off. Some years ago, I had a pastor tell me, he was like, Joel, I think you do too much theology. When, you, when you're working with people, a lot of people you work with, they don't actually have a, a, a college education. When you're working with people who don't have a college education, shouldn't you kind of like bring it down a little bit and simplify things a little bit? Well, what if the angels took that approach with these folks who didn't have a college education right here? 
What if they didn't, the angels didn't use these big theological terms that they'd have to study? Now, there's nothing about education that makes you more likely to hear, receive, and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing about a lack of education or being poor or whatever it might be that, society, or that might put you on the outside according to society that would say, it's not for you. Who have you written off? What people group do you ignore? Well, here's the reality, church. As a result of classism, there are a lot of folks in our city who don't show up at church. We invite them. You invite them, and they're like, man, I would like to come. But, and they don't tell you this, but the reality is, is what they're saying in their, their, their head is, is, I would not be accepted there. Because they have this idea that church is this perfect little group of people that look good, have it all together, and i got to get myself together before I go hang out with them. I don't want to show up the way I am and be ashamed. Well, that's a lie that they've bought. But what do we do about it? What we do is this. We go to them. We don't just sit back and wait for them to come to us. We go to those who are on the outside. We go to the outcasts. We go to the broken. We go to the hurting. What did the angels do? They went to the shepherds. They found them in the field. And they proclaimed right where they were at the good news of Jesus Christ. I think that's a pretty good model. And I think that that's what we have been commissioned to do by Jesus Christ himself. Go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Who are you going to go to? What soul do you want to see saved in 2019? Who are you praying for? What place are you uncomfortable in? Uh, and there's somebody there that needs to know Jesus. Are you going to that individual? We go. We proclaim. As the angels did. For unto you is born. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's not just born for us. He's born for you. He's a Savior. And He is Christ. And He is the Lord. The point is simply this. The Gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. I think that's what Luke wants us to see at the beginning of his gospel. This good news, this message goes to everybody. It goes to the least of these and it goes to the greatest. Listen, family, friends, if you can hear my voice right now, if you will hear this message, the gospel is for you. There's nobody in this room who Jesus cannot redeem and save and lead. Amen. 
You know why we have a lot of joy on Christmas Day? As adults, now kids, you guys have joy because you get gifts. Some of you adults still get all giddy about some new gadget, new pair of socks. Um, you know why most of us, though, I think, really just have joy on Christmas? It's because we don't have to work. <laughs> right? Like, like, it's all done. Like, the work is finished. We've been working our butt off. And everything's wrapped. It's under the tree. The meal is pretty much put together, ready to go. You're not going into work that day. Do you realize that when work is finished, it elicits joy in us? When work is finished, we have joy. Do you know why Christians are to be people who have joy? It's because the work is finished. You know, if you are a person who thinks you've got to work to earn God's favor, you've got to work to earn your salvation, you've got to work, you've got to get yourself together, you've got to do all of these things in order for God to smile upon you, you will have no joy in life because you're working. The Christmas message comes to us and says He's the Savior, He's the Christ, He's the Lord. As we understand who He is, what we understand is that He accomplished the work for us. The work is done. It's finished. We can have joy. We can rest knowing that we know God because we know Christ. There's joy in the Christian life. Our righteousness is in the life of Jesus. The debt that we owe God has been paid by Jesus' death. The, the load that we carry about has been taken by Him, and in Christ alone we find rest. As I close, I want to point out the, the response of the shepherds and the people who heard this message. The shepherds show up at the nativity scene and it's only then that we see the nativity scene burst into joy. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Listen, they delivered the message about Jesus' identity to those who were present. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered. Wondered there, it means marveled. They marveled at what the shepherds told them. Or they were astonished. We don't know exactly what their physical response was. Maybe it was a shout. Maybe it was like a little jig, a dance of some sort. Maybe it was a song. Maybe it was a tear. Maybe they just talked with each other and, and said, I can't, can you believe, I can't, this is amazing. 
We don't know exactly what their physical response was, but it was astonishment. It was marveling at the identity of this little baby. And I love Luke's additional note in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's almost as if to say Mary was just quiet. Mary was struck to the core. Mary treasured these things in her heart. As she pondered the fact that this little baby is her Savior. This little baby is her Lord. This little baby is her Messiah. Listen, I want to be astonished at the identity of Jesus Christ. I want us to marvel at who Jesus is. I want us to be like the shepherds in verse 20 as they return, as they go home, they go home glorifying and praising God for all that they have heard and seen. What if that was the story of those of us who come to the Garden Church week in and week out and we hear the message of who Jesus is delivered to us and all of us go home glorifying and praising God for the things that we've seen and heard. That should be the Christian response. Do you have joy in your heart? Do you marvel at the identity of Christ? When, when we hear these things and when we dwell on these things, does it astonish you that God would come to us in such humility to make a wretched treasure to save someone like us? Let us praise Him. Let us go from here and let us praise Him with joy. Amen? Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. Not just simply a picture of humility in the nativity scene, but we thank You for the identity of that little baby in that manger that was proclaimed to the outsiders that day and proclaimed to us, all of whom are outsiders, once upon a time, saved by Your grace, brought into the covenant, part of this family. God, as we hear the identity of Jesus, may we go out of here rejoicing and praising Him, glorifying You for sending us such a Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.